We're ready and raring to go to talk about the greatest NFL players that wore jersey number 85. And today's guest is John Turney, who's really set statistics on their ear this summer with him and the Pro Football Journal team powering up Pro Football Reference to give us all the great stats. And John's here to share with jersey number 85 in just a moment. This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. Your host, Darren Hayes, is podcasting from America's North Shore to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So as we come out of the tunnel of the Sports History Network, let's take the field and go no huddle through the portal of positive gridiron history with pigskindispatch.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Welcome to the Pigpen. We have another bonus edition. We're talking about the jersey numbers of the NFL, and we are at jersey number 85. And we have a special guest to help us today from the Pro Football Journal, John Turney. Uh, John Turney, welcome to the Pigpen. Hello. Thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. Well, this is uh, the thrill is all ours, my friend. I appreciate you coming on. Now, John, maybe if just to start off, we could just learn a little bit about you, where your football fandom comes from. Maybe you could just take us through the progression of what got you so interested in the game of football to uh, have a website on it. Well, I just, yeah, I'm probably quite a bit older than a lot of your listeners. I'm 57. But uh, my, my father was a, was a fan and my older brother. So as early as 1970, 71, I was familiar with football and became a fan about that time. I didn't know anything, obviously, and then as I got older, played lower-level football, high school, and so forth, and was a very average player at that, and then became just a fan. I was really interested in all aspects of the game. You know, uniform numbers is one of them, but I like uniforms, I like the statistics, I like playing it. Uh, like watching it on on television, and then I got into doing research, and it grew from there. And then I got into to coaching some semi pro as well, and that's been very satisfying. So it's really been a lifelong endeavor, if you will. Wow, that that's a quite the story there. I mean, I, I'm I'm right in the same age group as you, and I think a lot of our listeners are too. I'm I'm 55, so you're not you're not uh, out there by yourself here. Uh, so I'm, everything you're going to talk about is very relevant to, to me and many of the listeners. In case uh, we have a listener, maybe that just uh, woke up something you know, from a deep sleep, can you tell us a little bit about what the Pro Football Journal website is all about? Well, it's essentially uh, my way of getting all my thoughts. Uh, on paper, if you will. You can't do it on paper anymore, but it's just a, it's a journal. I write whatever comes to mind, and uh, I've got some really solid people that, that contribute as well. Nick Webster does, TJ Troop does, and Chris Willis of NFL Films does. And we try to cover things that we call it esoteric, things that not everybody's interested in. Sometimes that will include uniforms or uniform numbers, but also obscure statistics and, and tackle statistics that you can't get from other websites. Uh, Chris Willis is an expert in pre-World War II football. He's written books on uh, Red Grange and Dutch Clark and others. He's going to be doing the definitive work on Bronco Nagurski in the next year or two. Well, I think he's getting close to getting done, but it won't come out till next year. A few of us have been on 
NFL Films Presents, doing our research and things like that. So it's a, it's a website where people can get things that are just not the ordinary things. That's at least what our goal is. Definitely all of you do such a great job at that. I know I was uh, looking through last night at it, and uh, you know, Chris Willis's uh, article on the Red Grange in the, uh, the candy company, I mean, some eye-catching photos there and some great uh, stories there. But uh, you have a lot of treasures uh, in the Pro Football Journal that are just awesome to, to look at. So we appreciate uh, what you do. Oh, thanks. I uh, appreciate the compliment. Well, I, I know you have been uh, quite the story here this summer. You and you mentioned Nick Webster uh, with the uh, Pro Football Reference having the uh, sack totals prior to the 1982 season. And the NFL only recognized 1982 on. But uh, you and Nick uh, did this, a lot of work. Uh, I believe it was like 30-some years of work to uh, bring sack totals to some generations of football uh, players that didn't have them recorded before. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Well, yeah, that started back in the early 90s. Uh, Lawrence Taylor became the, the all-time sack leader, I believe it was in 1992. It was on the Giants games when you would watch them, and they would show his total of, of surpassing Dexter Manley at the time. But it was just odd to me that they weren't counting his rookie season, which was 1981. So his total... Was, was approaching what his career total turned out to be was 133 whatever, 132 and a half, and they just weren't counting his rookie year. But anybody who had, you know, football cards or got any of the football preview magazines at the time or media guides knew that he had nine and a half back in his rookie year. It was just odd that they didn't kind of grandfather in the current players even if it was just for a few years. But that led one thing led to another, and when I found out these things called the aim books exist, they used to call them play-by-plays, that's what got me going. Then I would go to different cities when I had the opportunity and talk to the PR folks, and they'd let me in, and I would do the research for sacks. And then uh, a couple years into it, Nick Webster gave me a call and was interested in getting the data, so I shared it with him, and found out he was on the East Coast, and he was able to visit cities I wasn't really able to get to readily. So that's kind of how that started. We got most of it done within the first five, eight years, but, boy, the hard part is finding the gaps. I would say 90% of the work was finding 10% of the missing facts because game books were not complete at the time. And sometimes you just had to really dig into the film and newspapers or whatever you could do to find missing facts. And I wish it could be a little more complete. It's really good, I believe, from the mid-60s on. But in the early 60s, it's there's just so many missing things. I wish it could have been better. And we're working on the 1950s now, and that may be something we'll, we never be able to complete. That's kind of our white whale is the fact totals from the 1950s. So that's where we're going now. It's got to be a lot of work because I know I've looked at the, some of those game books uh, that are out there, and some of them are like you know handwritten. Uh, the penmanship's not the greatest. Uh, you know, the copies aren't the greatest. I mean, that is uh, a lion's share of work that uh, you folks did to, to get those stats. So our hats are off to you on that. Well, thanks. I, I think it does. Even though we don't advocate that they become official, I don't think it matters if a statistic is official or not. What matters is if it happened or not. So whether the NFL ever gives 
Lawrence Taylor credit for his full 142, doesn't matter. Fans can look and see that he had the nine and a half as a rookie. And then all the other players that we've talked about and that have been written about, Bubba Baker getting 23 sacks uh, and having the, the unofficial record, I think that's fine. It gives people an idea of what happened. And I think that's what's more important than any specific number or any specific statistic. All football statistics are skewed in some way or another just based on how the game is played. Uh, even baseball statistics are skewed because you don't know who was pitching. You don't. You, you have to know the dimensions of the ball field, those kinds of things, and that's what makes sports interesting. If it were static, nobody would care because everybody would be on that level playing field, and it's really not, and that's what makes discussions interesting. That is uh, very well said and very well stated, and, uh, yeah, wow, that, that's a I can't even imagine the, the amount of work it took to do that. But uh, we've got a little bit of work here ourselves today because uh, I've uh, brought you into the challenge with myself here to discuss some of these uh, greatest players in NFL history that wore jersey number 85. And uh, I, I think uh, I think we're going to be up to the task here with uh, your vast knowledge of the NFL, and uh, I'm excited to, to hear what we have to say here. Well, hopefully I can bring a little extra to the table through – some statistic notes that I can give you as we go along, but um, listen to some of the past ones, and, and everybody's done a really good job, and it's fun hearing about these players who we grew up watching, and and even current players that are doing well wearing current num- you know these numbers. So, if, you know, maybe it'll be interesting to folks. We'll let them be the judge, I guess. Okay. Well, I'm going to just uh, wet, the, wet our whistles just a little bit. I'm just going to mention by name and not go into any stories or statistics, but the, usually we start off with the Pro Football Hall of Fame, who they say uh, wore the jersey number. And the Pro Football Hall of Fame has uh, four players enshrined that wore jersey number 85, according to them. And that's Jack Youngblood, Nick Buonacani, Art Monk, and Rayfield Wright. I don't know if that maybe gets us uh, kick-started here into these jersey 85s. Well, interesting, Rayfield Wright normally wore number 70 as a right tackle, but people forget that he was a tight end his first couple of years and um, wore number 85 as a, as a backup tight end. He didn't become a tackle until 1969 and then became a starter in 1970. Another guy who wore number 85 before he wore number 70 was Russ Washington. He was a gentleman, a right tackle for the Chargers. He just passed away. He was, they called him Mount Washington or Big Roo. He was 6'7", listed at 295, but probably closer to 310, 320. And he was a defensive tackle his first couple of years that he wore number 85. And then in 1970, converted to right tackle. So there's a little bit of parallel there with, um, with, 85 and those guys changing to number 70 and then moving to right tackle. And ironically, Jack Youngblood calls those two guys the best players he's ever faced. Uh, Rayfield Wright, he says, gave him fits, and he said, I don't think I ever got anything off of uh, Russ Washington. So there's there's the tie-in with Jack Youngblood as well. Wow, that is a, a great segue into to Mr. Youngblood. So uh, would you like to talk a little bit more about him? Yeah, I think he's still probably, in my view, he's the most underrated Hall of Famer because he has all the things you could ask for in a Hall of Fame resume, but when the all-time teams come out, he never gets mentioned. If it's a 
a top 100 list. The Athletic just did a top 100 list, and he didn't make that. But here's a guy who was a five-time consensus All-Pro and three-time second-team All-Pro, had 151 in a, a career sacks. He had the legendary run where he played the playoff games and the Pro Bowl with a fractured fibula. He was somebody who was known as a tough player. He was had testimonials from guys who, who said, hey, this is the best guy I ever faced. Ron Yeri said that. Dan Deardorff said that. Fred Tarkenton said that, you know, he's the best defensive guy I ever faced. Fred, and Roger Staubach, in his book, Time Enough to Win, said I'd have to give Jack Young was the vote as the toughest player, I, defensive player I've ever faced. So he has all those things on his resume, yet he can't make a, the NFL's uh, century team. He was beaten out by guys, in my opinion, that have lesser resumes, and he continues to get slighted for whatever reason. That's 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 kind of how his career has unfolded. He produced, was consistent, played a long time, played tough. People who played against him said he was the best or one of the best. Coaches respected him. Yet the writers never really got it. They just don't understand how good a player he was. Uh, I totally agree with everything you're saying. It's kind of interesting. I was uh, reading up on him the other day, and I didn't realize this. He, when he came to the Rams, he played behind Deacon Jones' first year, so he didn't get much playing time there. And they ended up, uh, the Rams ended up trading Deacon. And then he split time with Fred Dreyer, uh, which I found uh, pretty interesting. So you know, two other uh, Hall of Famers that uh, he uh, sort of learned and you know, cut his teeth on in the NFL was uh, kind of an interesting story. Yeah, that second year he was generally the starter. He split a you know a little bit of time with Fred Dreyer, but that there, uh, we've written about that, and it kind of it, it kind of was one of those things where they were giving credit to both players. But I would say, you know, Youngblood in 1972, that year he, he split time so called with Dreyer. Youngblood still led the, the defensive lineman in tackles. He led the defensive lineman in hurries. So he, he really got you know, 80, 90% of the playing time. And there were times when they would both be on the field, he and Fred Dreyer, playing what was called a 57 defense, where they would move Poy Bacon, the starting end, to tackle. And then they would have kind of a four, a three defensive end pass rush. And you're right about the rookie season for Youngblood. He backed up Jones and started about three games and then played probably the majority of a couple more where he would kind of give it a try, couldn't go because of that uh, bad arch. So you're right in essence, but I would say he was really the starter in 72. I mean, what uh, the main thing is, you know, the Rams were not deficient at all on that, that defensive line back in that era. I mean, they had that uh, the the whole thing with, you know, Deacon and, and Fred Dreyer and um, – wasn't uh, Merlin Olson on that line also? Uh, you know, just, yeah, uh, he sure then the, was. Then the draft Youngblood. Wow, that's uh, re- really restocking the shelves there. Yeah, they did a really good job with that. And uh, the, the fearsome foursome, which took place in the 60s with Deacon and another number 85, Lamar Lundy, was the right end who had a good career, moved into kind of a second version of the fearsome foursome with Youngblood, Dreyer, Brooks, and again, Olsen. So a lot of folks forget how good that defense was. During the 1970s, no team 
stop the run better. No team allowed fewer rushing touchdowns. No team had more sacks. And only the Vikings allowed fewer points than the Rams in the 1970s. So this was a, an elite defense for a long time. It definitely is. Probably the unfortunate thing for them is that uh, they were in the NFC when you had some, some pretty good uh, Cowboys and Vikings and uh, Redskins teams that were, were in there. Now's a good time to take a break and hear a few words from our sponsor. We'll be right back with John Turney and the Jersey number 85s in just a moment. Hey, are you ready for some football? Some fantasy football? How about some daily fantasy football? Silly questions, right? Of course you are. You're ready to talk some smack and win some cash every Sunday, at Thursday, at Monday, whenever there's football games. The Sports History Network invites you to play your daily fantasy football this season at thrivefantasy.com. Thrive Fantasy offers hundreds of thousands, millions in cash every day on NBA, MLB, PGA Golf, Cricket, Esports, and of course, NFL football. And just to get the 2021 NFL season started right, Thrive Fantasy is holding its $100,000 guaranteed contest with a $20,000 first prize. Sign up with Thrive Fantasy today to get a 100% match bonus on your first deposit for up to $100 in free daily fantasy football play. Visit sportshistorynetwork.com slash thrive. That's T-H-R-I-V-E. Or enter promo code SHN when depositing at the cashier. Join Thrive Fantasy today, earn cash prizes, and support great shows like this at the Sports History Network. Now that's a win-win-win situation for you to kick off your own NFL season. Now let's resume our talk with John Turney of the Pro Football Journal on Jersey number 85s and the greatest in history. John, maybe you could talk about one of our other Hall of Famers, Nick Buonacani. Yeah, he was an, uh, another un, uh, oh, you know, underappreciated kind of guy. He didn't get as much all-pro notice as, as he might have because there was a, it was a great era for middle linebackers. But he was the leader of the no-name defense and almost always the leading tackler on his team, if not every year. Uh, he had a high of 142 tackles one year, and he was knocking down passes, and he intercepted a bunch. So it's really – He's got to be number two on the list as the best player to ever wear number 85 behind Youngblood. Uh, I do not disagree that a bit. I mean, interesting story is when uh, Nick came out of Notre Dame, his coach at Notre Dame, I think it might have been Parsegian, I'm not sure about that, uh, he told the pro scouts that uh, Buonacani, he felt, was too small to play in the NFL. And uh, I guess many of the NFL uh, scouts believed him because he had to go into the AFL. But what did he prove everybody wrong uh, with uh, his play? Yeah, and they listed him at 5'11". I'm not sure he was quite that tall. But he had a lot of smarts and he had enough quickness to get in the passing lanes through that means. But he wasn't able to have the height sometimes. And it, it could have hurt him a little bit. But nonetheless, he was a guy who ended up with 13, 1,400 career tackles by our research, so and a deserving Hall of Famer in my view. Oh, mo- most definitely. When you, uh, you lead a, a defense that has called a no-name defense, and uh, you go undefeated and win a championship, that's that's a pretty good uh, record right there to get you in. Yeah, and I agree with you. And then in 1973, the defense was even better than it was in 1972. So it was an elite defense for four or five years 
I would say between 70 and 74 with that peak in 1972-73 and the back-to-back Super Bowl wins. And I agree with you of him being the second one on there uh, with Youngblood on our, our list here. Do we want to stay with our Hall of Famers or do we want to go off uh, script here a little bit? Because I know the other two Hall of Famers, Art Monk and Rayfield Wright, only wore that jersey number for one season each, where uh, Youngblood and Bonacani were 14 and 15 years respectively. We're in 85. Yeah, and, um, you know, Monk, we know him more from the Redskins, and 85 was when he moved away from them. So, yeah, I mean, there's a potential Hall of Famer in Antonio Gates for the Chargers, who wore number 85, and he went to all those Pro Bowls and was a converted basketball player, moved into the NFL and became a uh, star tight end, uh, much like – Tony Gonzalez, in a way, both were basketball players. The the difference was that uh, Gonzalez at least played college football, and Antonio Gates didn't. Seems to be the the trend of, of uh, some of the tight ends that are in the modern NFL right now. You know, I think uh, like you said, Gonzalez and Gates are sort of the ones that open those floodgates. But now you have a lot of athletic uh, tight ends coming in, and uh, a lot of them former basketball players are sort of the same skill set and uh, you know reaching up to grab passes like you would a basketball. And uh, of course, the great size doesn't hurt either. Yeah, and. Uh... When you play basketball, of course, you've got to have leaping ability, and then Antonio Gates had that. Although he got bigger and bigger as he played in the NFL, so I'm not sure he retained all those hops. But he was certainly an effective player and has a shot at the Hall of Fame. I, I don't know if he'll make it or not, but he's got what anybody would say are Hall of Fame numbers. It's going to be the intangibles that he may or may lack that, that, that would keep him out or make him wait for quite a while. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. I would, I would tend to lean towards it also that I think, uh, he's very deserving of getting in there. But, you know, like you said, who knows how the, uh, the folks that vote, the sports writers and that, uh, are going to look at him, uh, when he becomes eligible, which I believe is in uh, a year or two, he'll be eligible to go in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, and he certainly was an effective weapon in the end zone with over 100 career touchdown receptions. So that's going to be the one thing that the, that can't be denied. He was a guy who could be relied on in, in the red zone and score your points. So that's that's where he's going to have to have his case made for him. Most definitely. Most definitely. Okay, now uh, who, who else do you have uh, we can talk about? Yeah, the current guy is probably George Kittle, who's another one of the guys that we're talking about in terms of being a great receiver and a good athlete. He's my favorite tight end right now because he can block. He's kind of a Gronk Jr. A lot of other folks like Travis Kelsey, and and that's fine, but I just think Kittle's got the complete package. So I think he's uh, a guy who's on an uh, Hall of Fame arc, but he's still, you know, we got 10, 12 years to go before we can find out if he can sustain it. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. I think he is by far probably the best tight end in the game right now. Even uh, you know, maybe Gronk in his prime would have overtook him. But, yeah, Kittle is definitely a, a weapon for the 49ers and uh, mm. very, very tough to defend. Another 85 I liked as a kid, one of my favorites, was Isaac Curtis for the Bengals. He was a tall, fast receiver. And for some reason, I always liked the wide receivers that averaged over 20 yards a catch. To me, that just looked really cool in the statistical category. You see the line where... Some guys were averaging 16, 17, but you see Isaac Curtis and Roger Carr and Cliff Branch at 20, 22. And I, for some reason, that always caught my eye as a kid. I don't know. But Isaac Curtis was 
certainly special in the in the mid seventies. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. I'm I'm a Steelers fan here in Western Pennsylvania, and uh, I remember he was one of those guys that you just feared uh, when the Steelers would be playing the Bengals. That you know, even with the great defense the Steelers had, he seems like he always had their number. Always would have a big game against them, and guy was just a gamer, and that's for sure. Yeah, and it was a different era where if a wide receiver caught three passes in a game and they were for 60 yards, that was a big deal. That would end you, that would end the season with 40, 40, 45 catches for 900 or 1,000 yards. So they didn't have the opportunities in that kind of a dead ball passing era. And that was the case for, for a lot of those guys where modern guys, younger guys, kids will say, oh, he didn't have Hall of Fame numbers. And then you just have to remind them you had to see him play. That's like Lynn Swan and Drew Pearson and so forth. But Isaac Curtis was in that same category at his peak. I don't think he sustained it as long. And his, I think he got hurt a little bit and the offense changed and so forth. But at his peak, there was four or five guys that were – super deep threats, and he was one of them. And he was 6'3", 190 pounds, and could run the 4'3", He was a track guy at San Diego State. So he was he was super talented. It would be fun to watch him play today. Yeah, I think he would probably definitely fit the mold of uh, what offensive coordinators are looking at today. And uh, so it really made him dangerous uh, back uh, back in the 70s when he played in the 80s. Um, but like you said, they didn't, uh, didn't air the ball out as much as they do today and they didn't have the same formations uh, set on the pass. It was a run-first league even then. So, yeah, but uh, great player, Isaac Curtis, definitely. Uh, who else do we have on the, the docket for today for 85? Well, we mentioned him a little bit. Lamar Lundy was a right end for the, the Rams' fearsome foursome, and he actually led the team in sacks in 1961 with 11, and he had other seasons where he had close to double digits. So he could play. So he's one who's not on the front burner of a lot of guys' uh, memories for being an 85, but I think he's one of them. He, he was – not necessarily one of my favorites, but he's just one of those guys who was always steady and was kind of a uh, a leader type on that fearsome foursome. Uh, I don't disagree with that. That's a very good point there on him also. Uh, who, who else do you have here for, for 85 that's a significant player? In my mind, Julius Adams for the Patriots is somebody who fits that mold as being significant. He was there for in 19, from 71 to 85 and then retired for a year and came back in 87 to help out the team. But he's was only he went to the Pro Bowl only once, but he was a, a steady player who moved around a lot. He started off as a defensive end and moved to a tackle. Then in 74, when the Patriots were among the first teams to play a, a 3-4 full-time as a base defense, Adams got moved to that position, five techniques or even four technique, head up on the tackle. So he didn't have pretty numbers like some of the defensive ends of his era, but he did a, just a tremendous job because he was uh, extremely strong, just natural strength, and he could get some, some pressure on the on the quarterback from his right-end position. So he's a forgotten player and another one of those great ones that we've lost over the past several years. Uh he passed away at a fairly young age, and it's just really too bad. But he was part of a tremendous 1971 defensive end draft class that 
included, as we've mentioned, Youngblood, but Adams was there and Tony McGee was there and Lyle Alzado came out of that and there was a lot of really good defensive ends that came out of the 71 draft. Wow, okay. I didn't realize they all came out at the same time. You're right. That is quite a, a collection of uh, great ends that came out for playing on the defensive side. So, okay. Uh, Mel- oh, pardon me. I no, no go that. ahead. I was just going to ask you who you have next. Well, Mel Gray is in the same category, I think, as Isaac Curtis. He was another one of those 20-yard-a-catch guys that could get down the field. He might have even – he was even faster than – Isaac Curtis. Back then, they, they talked in terms of 100-yard dash times as much as they did 40 yards, and, and Mel Gray was a 9-2 guy. Isaac Curtis was a 9-3 guy. And for comparison, Mel Brand, uh, Cliff Branch, who just got the senior nomination for the Hall of Fame, was a 9-2 guy. So Cliff, so Mel Gray was right there. He was a deep thread in the big red offense, the, the, you know, the party, the, the comeback kids, and he was somebody who was kind of special as well. He was a smaller guy, 5'9", maybe, what, 170, but he, he could sure get deep, and he was another fun one that uh, you would remember from the 70s. Oh, yeah, most definitely. I can remember, uh, you know, Hart dropping back a pass and uh, launching some out to, to him as he'd go down the field. Another Another great one to remember. Glad you brought him up. Yeah, so there's there's Wesley Walker is another one like that. Mel, uh, Mark Duper, both of them are guys that sometimes Duper never averaged 20 yards a catch in the season, but boy, he was close one year, and in his era, that was pretty special. So uh, I liked him a lot. He was a he was kind of a Mel Gray type, and he was five nine, a shorter kind of guy, and uh, was you know I, I think he was. Somebody who's still a little bit underrated. A lot of people like uh, Mark Clayton better than him, but I think I think Duper had probably the more consistent career. I don't know if you agree with that or not, but that's what I think. Well, you know, they were both so close. You know, I, I think they just complemented each other, and uh, you know, almost like Swan and Stallworth, or uh, you know, players like that. Uh, just they, I don't know that one would have had the success without the other one being on the other side. Of course, you know, having uh, somebody slinging the rock like uh, a damn Reno doesn't hurt either. No, I, no, absolutely not. And I don't mean to slight Mark Clayton, but uh, you know, Mark Duper is was was kind of special as well. So I liked him a lot. Wesley Walker was another guy that, I don't know, maybe we had several guys that were number 85 that were deep threats. Wesley Walker's first couple of years was averaging 24 yards a catch. He was a deep threat for the Jets. And I think he might have been the all-time leader in yards per catch statistics for his first, I don't know, five, six years. Then he became more of a possession receiver and his, and his numbers dropped. But he was somebody who... Jeez, he could get deep as well. So I remember watching him, and uh, what I thought was interesting is his number, 85, looked great when the Jets changed their uniforms in 1978. I don't know if you remember that. They went to the green hel- They went to the green helmet, and Wesley Walker, to me, kind of was the epitome of that, and that number, the font they used, just looked great on that jersey. So that's one yeah. thing I remember about him. Yeah, I agree. I, I like those uh, those uniforms, especially the helmets that the Jets had. Then that was kind of kind of a cool. Uh, that you know had the word Jets wrote on it, and it sort of had like a, an emblem of a jet, the the line of 
going underneath it. I thought those were pretty neat. I'm surprised they went away from those. Yeah, and so uh, another board number 55 is uh, uh, Chad Ochocinco or Chad Johnson, however we want to call him, and he probably has the best numbers of any of the receivers. However, um, he wasn't one of my favorites because he just played in a different era where those receiving yards and catches came a lot easier. No denying that at his peak, he was an excellent player, a, a Pro Bowl-level guy. Yeah, he was uh, you know, definitely in an era where he got to catch the pass a lot more. And sort of that the era where the uh, receivers started becoming the, the sort of the divas that uh, they're monikered here the last couple decades, uh, he was one of those that uh, sort of fit the bill on that. And you know, sometimes he was kind of interesting to, to watch, you know, especially when he went to the Ocho Cinco type things. But uh, sometimes maybe uh, it didn't, wasn't appealing to the, the masses of the NFL fan. Yeah, probably so, but he, you know, when he changed his name to 85, Ocho Cinco, and wearing number 85, that's gotta be the only time that's ever happened, as far as I know. Uh, although he had to kind of go to the courts to change the name, but I thought that was, he was, you know, a double 85, if you will. His name's 85, number's 85, and he tried to make that into a marketing thing. Unfortunately, by the time he did it, uh, I just don't think he was at his peak anymore. So it became kind of a novelty, almost a little bit of a joke. Which is a... <laughs> I, I agree with you there. That's probably just a little bit too late. He probably would have made a few more dollars off it uh, maybe three or four years uh, prior to that uh, when he did it. So, interesting. One of the, one of the last guys to have uh, that maybe your listeners would like to know about is Bill Stoffner. Now, he's a guy who is a was a wide receiver for the Giants. He started off at the Rams wearing number 29, goes to the Giants, and he changes to number 85. One of the very few wide receivers that was a five-time first-team All-Pro. Folks can go on Pro Football Reference and look up wide receivers and how many of them were five-time All-Pro. Very few. You're talking Jerry Rice, Don Hudson, and Lance Allworth are the guys that had more all pros than he did yet he almost gets no attention for the hall of fame he was uh, a split end that was on the one receiver side and according to my colleague at pro football journal tj troop was really the guy who who caused defenses to, to rotate to that one receiver side which was kind of what they try to credit bob hayes with as quote unquote changing the game well, I'm sure they did it probably more for Bob Hayes because he was a faster player, but Del Schopner was almost as fast. He was a lightning fast guy. And according to TJ said, that's usually zone defenses of the day, cover threes would rotate to the, the two receiver side. That's just how they were designed. But if you have to reverse that, that means you're putting double coverage on that split in, which which is what Del Schaffner was, that he had more to do with that kind of defense than even Bob Hayes did, and not many of your listeners would know that. So I thought that was an interesting tidbit. I had to learn it from T.J. myself. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that. I mean, I remember the name, but I didn't realize uh, the five-time All-Pros and uh, the, the statistics in that light. So that's a very interesting, uh, very observant of your uh, cohort there. Great job. Um, yeah, he's just a, you know, we like to study the film as well as count things at Pro Football Journal. Well, that's, that's awesome. That's a great, uh, little tidbit. Much appreciated. 
Um, and now, do you have anybody else you want to talk about from the 85s? That's really all I had written down. Now, if you have some that, that I may have missed, I'd be glad to comment on them if, uh, if I know anything about them. Well, uh, I mean, we have a kind of an interesting wide receiver in Drew Hill that, uh, that played back in the era that you and I have uh, both remember watching, I'm sure. Yeah, and he started off wearing number 87 for the Rams, and he was a deep threat for them. He was their guy who could average 20 yards a catch, and he was running a lot of deep ends and, and go routes. Then he goes to the Oilers, and they have a completely different offense, and he becomes a starter, and he is in that uh, run and shoot, and then he catches tons of passes and, and and is one of their outside guys in that. He wasn't one of the slot guys. So he had to you know, put up really good numbers because of that, that scheme and was perfect for it since he was kind of a Smurf-like guy, 5'9", 170, kind of in the same mold as, as Mel Gray we were talking about. And he had tremendous speed, but he wasn't as fast as some of the other guys that we've talked about. Probably more of a 4-3-5, 4-4, rather than a you know, 4-2, 4-3, if you will. But yeah, good numbers in a in a very pass happy scheme was Drew Hill. Yeah, that's uh well you could put together quite the track team of uh these eighty fives in their prime, uh go against almost any other number and uh probably be very competitive. There's a lot of fast guys that are on this number. Yeah, they really are. Gray was lightning fast, uh Hill was fast, Isaac Curtis was fast, Del Schaffner was fast. I you're talking guys that are all four four or better. Yeah, well, I think even um, 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 oh God, who we were talking about, the, Wesley Walker, I think was another one that was a, a speedster that when he came out with the Jets. So yeah, out of California, absolutely, he was probably a four three or better. Uh, the slowest one we've talked about is probably um, Ocho Cinco or Derek Mason, who we haven't yet talked about, who is a steady kind of receiver for a couple of teams that. Uh, Put up good numbers, but was never a star, but a solid player and, and worthy of being on a, any kind of list, the list number 85. Yeah, most definitely. I was going to just mention him, so I'm glad you brought him up on that. Okay, um, now do you feel comfortable if, if we've talked about everybody that's the most substantial players? I mean, there's a lot of great players we haven't talked about, but these are probably the most substantial ones. Are, are you comfortable with uh, helping me come up with maybe a top 10 list of these, these guys we've talked about? Uh, sure, if you'd like to. Okay, yeah, the the, the listeners really enjoy that. It makes it kind of fun, and uh, we get a lot of comments back on it. You know, sometimes they agree, sometimes they don't, but uh, makes it makes it more interesting. I, I think by what you were saying earlier, and I don't disagree, we were going to put Youngblood and uh, Buonacani as uh, our first two on that list. Yeah, I think Youngblood has to be first, Buonacani second, and then it would be debatable for for the rest of the ten. Who gets third, fourth, fifth? But yeah, Antonio Gates, Ocho Cinco, Duper, um, Julius Adams. I would put on mine, but other people might not put on theirs. Uh, Isaac Curtis would definitely be there, and Lamar Lundy perhaps. Max McGee's an interesting one because he was a really good player for years. Career became a backup. Then he was the star of Super Bowl One after you know with the famous story of him playing the game with uh, quite a hangover because he didn't know he was going to play. The the starting receiver uh, was was kind of ill, so here's the guy that made those great catches in Super Bowl One. And 
at least deserves a, a, a mention on a list like that. Yeah, I, I I don't disagree at all with any of those names. Now, how about uh, I think Kittle probably belongs on there too. I mean, I know he's young, he's early on in his career, but I think he's that dominant of a force uh, and probably going to get better as time goes on, unless he has some catastrophic injury or something. Yeah, I think so too because of his skill level. He's an elite player. Uh, he just is in the middle of his career. So yeah, he would definitely be on my top ten. I would just have to sit down and, and organize it. But, yeah, all these guys are – I think anywhere after three to ten would be almost interchangeable in my view. I totally agree with you. It would be tough to, to pick who you'd want to, to be in certain numbers, you know, after one and two. But, uh, yeah, I, I I don't disagree with you. So uh, I appreciate that, uh, you coming on and uh, helping us out here. Those are some uh, some great insight Uh your, your website is fantastic. Uh, maybe if you could, uh, if you could get everybody your uh, th- where they can find the Pro Football Journal and uh, maybe your your Twitter handle and any other social that you'd like to share with us. Yeah, uh, Twitter handle is uh, NFL underscore Journal, and that will always lead you to links Pro Football Journal, which is the uh, which is my blog, and. You can also just Google my name, John Turney, and Pro Football Journal, and it will come up. And you can see a lot of my colorizations as well that I do in Photoshop, colorize old photos from the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s to try to give people an idea of what they might have looked like. So we try to do a lot of, uh, as we say, esoteric things. Yeah, the, the photos are great. I, I failed to mention that earlier. Those are fantastic. Uh, you have quite a collection there. You have uh, quite the, the talent in doing that, and uh, that's much appreciated, the hard work, I'm sure, and the time it takes to do those. Well, thanks. Appreciate it. Well, John, I, I appreciate your time today and for uh, your sharing your knowledge with us on these great players and helping us remember uh, the NFL past players, as we always should, because uh, we can't get to be where we are today without them, that's for sure. And they make it such an interesting uh, time to grow up in, as most of these players were that you and I watched, and even the, the guys before that, just uh, fantastic players. So thank you very much uh, for all you do on the Pro Football Journal and uh, for sharing your information with us today. Well, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Appreciate it. The Pigskin Tales podcast is all about the lesser-known pro football players. Yes, there are stories about the ones we know, like Brad Tarkenton and Harold Red Grange. But have you ever heard of Ernie Nevers? How about Dave Osborne or even Grady Alderman? These men created their own path to the NFL. How did they do it? Listen to the Pigskin Tales podcast. Now streaming on your favorite music platform. Go to pigskintales.com. That's all the football history we have today, folks. Join us back tomorrow for more of your football history. We invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleat Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. Special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. This podcast is part of the
Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.